when Jew and I moved to Iowa, which was about almost 12 years ago, we moved here the second day of January, 1996. We were living in the, the metro Atlanta area of Georgia. And that second day of January, it's not real cold down there, so you could pack up and move. And we put our older two kids in this Mercury Sable wagon, and we made our way to Ankeny, Iowa. What if when we got to the Mississippi, Julie says, you know, I've taken a look around things, honey, and you know what, I think, now that I check out the scenes, I think I'm okay about right here, if that's okay with you. So I'm like, well, um, we really want to go a little further. She says, well, you know, I've been looking at the houses and the land, the landscape, and I think, me and the kids, I I think we'll be fine on this side of the Mississippi. But I'm really all for you. I know that God has called us to Iowa, but I tell you what, it's not that far of a commute. Just go ahead and we'll just kind of commute relationally, geographically. Uh, Will that work with you? So so we discuss and we disagree. We go back and forth. We talk. We argue. Make a long story short. What if that's how the arrangement was? She's on that side of the Mississippi. And I'm in Ankeny, Iowa, and that's how we raise our kids, and that's how we settle our differences, and that's how we communicate. And you would say, without any hesitation, watch this, that's not the way it was meant to be. Amen? You would say that in a heartbeat, and you would be exactly right. Now, as ludicrous as that sounds to you, as odd as that story seems... If you'll just kind of hold on to that story, it will serve as a very good backdrop for what took place in Joshua chapter 1. When Joshua had to remind two and a half tribes of a previous decision made under the leadership of Moses, which really caused things to be not like they were supposed to be. Would you find that place in your Bible, Joshua 1? And in fact, put a finger in Numbers 32. And while we look at these Scriptures briefly, I want to ask you to remember this simple sentence. In fact, I'm going to have you say it with me. You ready? Say this phrase with me right behind me on the screens. My sinful ordeals keep me from God's righteous ideals. Just keep that phrase in mind. And let's look at Joshua chapter 1. You've got a finger there, right? You've also got a finger in number 32. Let me show you exactly how we arrive at Joshua chapter 1, verse 10. The background takes place in Numbers 32. Look with me, Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5. And I'll just do this briefly, but I want you to understand where the ordeal came from. Numbers 32, apparently the Reubenites and the Gadites, you see that in verse 1? They had very large herds and flocks, and they saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking, well, that's good, but I thought God took care of your sheep. I thought God took care of your herds. Amen? They began to look around and say, hey, this place looks pretty good for us. And they had forgotten that God had promised, when you cross the Jordan, I will take care of you. And they began to think, well, we've got to take care of ourselves. I guess we've got to do it our way. And they began to take their control and matters into their own hands. And they began to make decisions apart from God's previous promises. So with their great human wisdom, it's kind of in the between the lines of the Hebrew here, <laughs> before verse 2, they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and they said, 
And they mentioned all these little town names. I'm not going to read them all to you. They said the Lord subdued. This is the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel. All these different places. Well, guess what? These very places are suitable for livestock and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Look at this next phrase. Do not make us cross the Jordan. That's odd, isn't it? You see, the Mississippi story is not as odd as you may think. She didn't do that. But here's the 12 tribes almost there. They're on the east side of the Jordan and they're about to cross over and suddenly two and a half tribes, because of their surroundings and circumstances, decide, hey Moses, I think we'll just stay on this side. Please don't make us cross over. When God's promise and command from early on was get across the Jordan and possess the land. Are you with me? Well, let me show you exactly Moses' response. Look over in verse 14. Here in Numbers 32, verse 14. He reviews previous to this, he reviews uh, the last time that folks said they weren't ready to go in, which was 40 years earlier approximately. He reviews that for them, and now he says in verse 14, and this is a stinging verse. And here you are, speaking of like, Okay, your fathers did this to us once, and now here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers, look at this phrase, and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. You know, when we refuse to move forward in our spiritual life, and we say, hey God, I've gone about as far as I can take me, and I'm kind of liking the way things are feeling right now, I'm kind of liking the way things are looking, I tell you what God, let's strike a deal and let me just camp out here for a while. It's like taking the sanctification process into your own hands. And it arouses the Lord's jealousy. He is a jealous God. It is His role, delight, and and willingness to take us to places of holiness and sanctification that He cannot for us to, to interfere with that and say, Hey God, I think I'm settled spiritually. Moses says, listen guys, you're arousing the Lord's anger. If you turn away from following Him, and he will, he, will, he will again leave all these people in the desert, and you will be the cause of their destruction. Look at verse 16. It's like they never listened to what He said. Then they came up to Him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock, and cities for our women and children. The rest of the story unfolds and basically Moses in, in, in some way... I, know, I haven't figured this out yet, by the way. Maybe in your lighthouse you can kind of theologically figure this out. But somehow Moses conceives and he allows two and a half tribes to stay on the east side of the Jordan. Nine and a half are to cross over. And the only promise that the half-tribe of Manasseh, which was a son of Joseph, and then the tribe of Reuben and Gad, the only promise they were to make was that when the rest of the tribes cross the Jordan, you've got to fight for them. As good as that sounds, let me say something to you. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Are you okay hearing that? You okay seeing that? God's promise... To Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God's promise even to Moses and Joshua was cross the Jordan and possess all the land. Somewhere in there, some selfish ordeals with Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh 
caused God's righteous ideals to, to take a back seat for a while. Numbers 32 is an interesting chapter in the pilgrimage of the children of Israel. Knowing that, then in Joshua chapter 1, when they reach the banks of the Jordan one more time, look at verse 10 with me. Joshua, after ordering the officers of the people, he says, go through the camp, you're in Joshua 1, right? And tell the people to get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan. You will cross it here. You'll go in. You'll take possession of the land. The Lord God is giving you for your own. All of a sudden, asterisk. (laughs) P.S. Footnote. And Numbers 32 pops back in the picture, doesn't it? Look at verse 12. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Now you remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord God has given you rest and has granted this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, they must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as He has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land. Interesting phrase there. He did not use the pronoun our land. He did not say go back and you can occupy your part, your part of our land. He suddenly seems to indicate, okay, after you've helped us, then you go back and live on your land. And you begin to sense, as Joshua recalls this situation and holds them to this treaty, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. He says, you go back to your land. And you occupy that which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Verse 16, then they answered Joshua. It's very important to understand something here. The word they in verse 16, you see that? That does not refer to the half-tribe of Manasseh and the two tribes, Gideon and, and Reuben, um, excuse me, Gad and Reuben. It refers back to the officers mentioned in verse 10. In fact, in your Bibles, you ought to draw a line from the word they in verse 16 over to the word officers in verse 10. Because what happened in this picture is this. Joshua's rallying all the people. And almost as an, as an insult, he says, Oh, listen, we're all going to cross over. Oh, time out. Hey, you two and a half tribes, you stay here. And you've got to keep your word and help us fight. And then you come back and you live on your land. Okay, and then all the other folks who he talked to earlier, earlier said, Yes, Joshua, we'll do everything you said. Really, the half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Reuben and Gad, they were actually quiet during this entire conversation. And notice how, how tense that must have been. Because look at the response of the officers in verse 16. You're there in your Bibles? Joshua 1.16. It says, They answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. I personally think that was a stinging verbal reminder to the two and a half tribes and their heads and whoever was there representing them. That says, yeah, we'll do whatever we're told and we'll go wherever we're told to go. Hint, hint. And calling these guys back to say, listen, years earlier, you didn't want to move forward. You didn't want to cross over. You were content. You want to settle on the wrong side of the Jordan. But no, Joshua, the officers of the camp, we will do everything. And just as we, look at this word in verse 17, just as we, what's the next word? Fully obeyed Moses. So we will obey you. Guess what? Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh didn't do. 
They did not fully obey God. Let me say that phrase to you again. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. I'm hoping I'm bringing you to some tension. It says, Only may the Lord your God be with you as He was with Moses. And whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them, he'll be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Here the leaders are actually repeating the words of of the Lord that He gave Joshua earlier. To move forward in courage based on God's presence and His promises. When you take Numbers 32 and Joshua 1, you have an incredible mix of God's sovereignty and man's sinfulness. I word it like this. My sinful ordeals keep me from God's righteous ideals. Could you say that with me one more time? Let's say it together. Ready? My sinful ordeals keep me from God's righteous ideals. Now, when you, can, when you compare these scriptures, you think about where the children of Israel were, and you think about the tension involved in these two passages, we're not left in an easy place. Is that okay to say? I mean, for months, as I've read through these scriptures, and as I've thought about this week, I mean, this is not an easy place to, to figure out. And so I'm I've, I've comfortable saying to you, first of all, God's sovereignty and man's sinfulness, I can't always figure out how those work together. Are you okay with that? But somehow, He does. He's able to take my sinful ordeals, things that really weren't the way they were supposed to be, and somehow in His sovereignty, He takes those and He works them for His purposes. I don't understand that. Numbers 32, Joshua 1, show me God doing that. What I do want to do today is to bring us to a place where we don't... And I'll say it this way. We don't put God in that position. Is that okay to say? I think you should hear my heart, don't you? Where we don't do what this brood of sinners did in in Numbers 32 and even back in Numbers 13 at Kadesh Barnea. Where we we bring God to a place where, where He says, okay, somehow instead of you obeying fully, now I've got to try to figure out, so to speak, and that's personifying God in a human way, so work with me, but, but I don't want to put God in a place where He has to suddenly work out everything because of my sinful, selfish ordeals. I want to obey fully. Amen, first family? And I want you to hear my heart in that. Not that it's a struggle for God to run the universe. I mean, we know it's not. He's not wondering what to do next if you mess up. But I'm trying to put this in a, from a human perspective and get you to see what God is after is complete, full obedience when He speaks to us. Amen? And what better message as we enter our fourth year of ministry than this? Let us obey God fully the first time. Amen? I would hate to lead a church and I would hate for you to be a part of a church where we were consistently, you know, deterring and detouring and bringing God to places where where He could see that we weren't obeying fully, but instead, hey God, let's make a bargain. Let's cut a deal, God. Now what God wants to hear from us is whatever you have said and wherever you send us, we will do and we will go. Period. Amen? That's what God's after. 
in light of that, I, I just want to make some observations to you, some things that will help us balance these two scriptures, things that we can take with us as we think about what it means to be borderline believers. Maybe as we compare these two passages, we think about our anniversary. Can I give you some observations about this story that I think speak to us here on the end of our third year and the beginning of our fourth? First of all, living for God's righteous ideal in a world of sinful ordeals is one tough but worthy pursuit. Can I get an amen there? I mean, can I state the obvious up front to you? I mean, I, I could see it in the crowd this morning as I started. You were like, Todd, you're saying this not the way it's supposed to be, but that's the story of humanity, Todd. I'm with you. It is. That's the story of your life and my life. We are people prone to sin. We make mistakes. That's why I say to you right off the bat, living for God's righteous ideal, the way it's supposed to be, in a world of sinful ordeals, let's just be real frank, that's one tough job. Now, listen to me very carefully. Listen with your hearts, not your ears. There's not a person in this room that would say, well, I don't want God's ideal. I mean, this is a tough job. I know it is. Because we're human. God's holy. Mixing those is difficult, but there's not a person here that would want anything less than God's best. And you know that. Let me give you an example. There's not a family in Ankeny. There's not a home in the metro area that puts little Johnny or Susie to bed at night and says, you know what, little Johnny or Susie? I'm so excited for you because one day when you get older, you're going to be able to marry someone that doesn't fit your lifestyle at all. They're going to be exactly the wrong person for you. It's going to be miserable. And I can't wait for you to get divorced. Now, now hang with me. I'm, I know you're going to be tense here. I'm not, I just want you to hang with me. There's not a person here. You can talk to the folks in our church who, for whatever reason, have gone through that, that, that situation of divorce, for whatever reason. There's, they wouldn't tell you in a heartbeat that was their intent. There's no way they wouldn't say that anything. You don't say to your kids at night, I can't wait for you to figure out how, how to spend your weekends with me splitting up our kids. How we're going to settle the money. It's a thrill. Now think about that. So you go to bed, little Johnny, and one day you'll know no one does that. You know why? Watch this. Because we all want the ideal. Why do you think that there's such a stir right now in our state over the marriage issue? Because we all are protecting and shooting for the ideal. God's Word as it's laid out. One man, one woman, forever. Are you with me? Now, that brings pain to hear that to somebody because their sinful ordeals on, on whoever's part it was. Their folks, they had no choice. Their spouse, for whatever selfish reason, abandoned them, divorced them, deserted them, had an affair on them. Who knows? There's all kinds of stories. But for whatever reason, there are people now who are dealing with something different than probably what they had planned on. They would echo what I just said. Living for God's ideals in a world of sinful ordeals is one tough job. But do we shoot for less than ideal then? No. Are you with me? What I'm trying to get you to see this morning in this first observation is recognizing man's sinfulness, admitting our 
our tendencies to sin just should not cause us to shrink back and say, well, good night. If it's hardly possible, why try? None of you want that for your children, and none of you want that for your church or your own life. So I'm asking you to do something this morning as we start off here, just to embrace the challenge of shooting for an ideal, God's ideal, amidst the fact that we are prone to sin. Church-wide. With, with our, our church here. Are we perfect? Not even close. Do we make mistakes? You bet we do. You've heard a lot of our great testimonies this morning. Amen. None of those were planned. That's awesome. But you know what? When, when, when certain things happen, mistakes, do we say, well, good night, just forget it, we're not going to try? No. We, we move on and we shoot for God's ideal. A church based on the Word of God, not the culture. Are you with me? Not your comfort zone or mine or your preference or mine. We take God's Word and say, Lord, this is the ideal. Let's go for it. That's a tough job. I simply want to establish here at the very get-go, the Israelites, man, their job was to cross the Jordan, take the promised land. That was God's ideal. And they should never have aimed for anything less. And those two and a half tribes should never have got their attention off God's ideal by looking at their surroundings. And isn't that typically what happens? We start looking around us at the comfort zones, and it takes us off course. That's my second observation. In this pursuit, comfort can lead to compromise. Now, that may be hard for you to admit while you're sitting in this theater-style chair, cushioned on the bottom and the back. <laughs> Are you with me? How many of you remember the days we sat in here on all folding chairs and bare walls and a concrete floor and we could hardly get the sound to work? Remember those days? How many of you were here? Raise your hand. If you don't, you probably don't appreciate the chair you're in right now. Who remembers our days at Parkview? Go ahead and admit it. Sure you do. We can look back at some of those days and at the time, you know, it's like, well, man, this is uncomfortable. It's difficult. All the hours are set up and... Sometimes when you're, when you're going through those things and you land in a... I'll use this phrase correctly. You land in a good place, you kind of do this. That's a, that's a, most pastors don't like that, that side. I'm just telling you, okay? These Israelites, I suspect, they got near the Jordan. They thought, man, we're close. We can see the other side. and It's probably that, not that much different. Let's just stay here. We've got a lot of cattle. A lot of livestock, let's just stay here. And I believe their comfort caused them to miss God's best. Comfort can do that to us. I thought about our setup team this week a lot, reading these stories, you know. And the hours and the months that so many of you have in different locations set up this church and tore it down, set it up and tore it down. And I want to say thank you for not, uh, for not giving up and not thinking, well, this isn't worth it. Look around you. It is worth it. And God is worth it. And to all of our small group leaders and nursery workers and cafe workers and greeters and ushers and all the host of teams that, that have people in them, thank you for not getting comfortable. Amen? And for pushing forward to God's ideal. 
In fact, can I give you a few gentle nudges to make sure you're not getting too comfortable? Is that okay this morning? Sure it is. Thanks for permission. I appreciate that. (laughs) A few gentle nudges, because I like to be a porcupine to you sometimes. When we pay off our land, don't back off from giving. This is a phrase I've been thinking about. When we pay off, don't back off. It's just kind of been on my mind this week. And we're close, by the way. We're only $75,000 away from having our land paid off. And see, at that point, we might do this again. But that's really not the end goal, to own land. Are you with me? We're not developers. Amen? So when we pay off the land, let's don't back off from giving. Let's continue to sacrificially invest and save. We would hope maybe in a couple of years from now, September of 2009, possibly, maybe in 2010, we could have that ground all broken up, block and brick and mortar on that thing. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That won't happen if we get comfortable after the land's paid off. Here's another gentle nudge for you. When we fill this building, don't think the church is full. You say, Todd, what are you saying? Look around, man. We're full. No, we're not. We're not full at all. You know why? Because the church is not this building. Now, we have filled this space up, but the church isn't full. Hallelujah. Amen. In fact, there is room at the cross for anyone who would believe. And when they believe, they become part of Christ's body as church. Guess what? The church has always got room for one more. Amen? And so I want to ask you to think twice about your definition of church. See, when you hear church, you think building. Mike shared with me this week. That's like you hear the word Christian, you think two by four. It doesn't work that way, people. The church is not brick and mortar building. The church is people. We're His temple, His house. And if we get... Overgrown in this space, we'll find different space. In fact, I was thinking this week and talking to someone that they said, What would you do if if you had nowhere to meet? I said to them, I don't know. But there'd still be a first family church. Amen. And I said, I think you'd find our people more motivated than ever. We respond pretty well to challenges. So when this building is full, don't think the church is full. And then lastly, one more gentle nudge. When we finally do build, and I mean that in the sense of like hammer nails, you know. When we do build, don't think we're done building. Because uh, I would love the day we move in to send out about a hundred or so more people. Free up some seats in our new auditorium one day. Send them out to plant a new church somewhere. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? To say, hey guys, go repeat this somewhere. Let God use you to reach people. Now, we don't know He'll do that exactly, but our elders and leaders are praying. You know, could God see us that to where the, the, the minute, the day that we say, hey, we're into our new place, ah, oh wait, we're sending these guys out, okay, we've got to take a deep breath and kind of re-sign up. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying never take a break and get a breath. But I am saying watch out for comfort zones in your life. Watch out for places where the enemy can detour you. Because comfort leads to distractions. And distractions is a nice word for temptations. So church, watch out for those comfort zones. You know, I was thinking about this whole idea of building and paying our land off and and ourselves as the church. It's important that on this third anniversary that, that we understand the real definition of church. You know, God's not looking to build a building. Amen. 
God's looking to develop a people. And that's what First Family Church is trying and out to do. That's the idea we're shooting for. So whether we're in a building or not in a building, whether we're in a nice place or not, and whether we build early or later, or who cares about all that stuff, we're going to follow God's ideal that He will construct a place, a people, a people place where His Spirit can live and in whom His Spirit can work and He can empower to do what the church does. Develop people. Make disciples. Let's keep thinking that way. Amen. I have found that when you think that way about church, then you're, you're a lot less likely to get frustrated with the logistics of church. Do you know that? As long as church is a building and you're very uncomfortable, it can seem frustrating. But when church is really a biblical, like it says, it's, it's people, then you find your frustration with the logistics side of church really starts decreasing. Because you're not really worried about that side of it. And then when your comfort level is, is kind of gone, you're like, hey, it's okay, it's no big deal. Your commitment level rises. You find yourself shooting and aiming for God's ideal. Third observation I want to share with you. It gets a little more tense here. Work with me. Sometimes in our ordeals, after we've worked through them, we find that present commitment may soothe the consequences, but it doesn't remove them. You know, one thing we've got to really admit about this text in Joshua, and we've got to give kudos to these two and a half tribes. They did keep their word, didn't they? And they were very sacrificial. When it was time to cross the Jordan, they said, man, we'll go fight. You bet we'll keep our word. But can I say to you, listen very carefully, that's not the way it was supposed to be. And I know I experienced this, and you do too. Sometimes we are very zealously committed in present situations. And it's good that we are, but we do it sometimes as a way to kind of make up for past mistakes. You ever done that? I've done that. I do that. And I'm not saying that's so wrong. I bring that to your attention because ideally, that same kind of commitment for God's ideal could be very powerful. Are you with me? Instead of maybe trying to make up, man, we could gain ground. God's ideal deserves our very best commitment. This idea of consequences kind of intrigued me this week. Let me share with you real briefly three consequences the children of Israel face because of this treaty in Numbers 32. Notice them very carefully. First of all, they had less soldiers for the battles in the Promised Land. Did you know that? Now, granted, those two and a half tribes did go fight. But according to Numbers chapter 26, now catch this. All you Numbers guys and girls who like facts, watch this. There were about 136, 137,000 able-bodied warriors in these two and a half tribes. As you know, the book of Numbers is a book of numbers. So it gives the counts of all the tribes and those who were 20 years of old and older and could go to war. And if you check out Numbers 26, you'll see that these two and a half tribes had about 136,000, 137,000 warriors. But we're also told in, in the book of Joshua, in verse, four, in verse 13 and chapter 4, that only 40,000 crossed the Jordan to do battle. Why do you think that is? I'll tell you why. Because who stayed on the other side of Jordan? Who stayed on the east side? All the women and children. Guess what they needed? Protection and care. So when God's idea was to have all the warriors fighting, this concession earlier caused some consequences. 
We couldn't take all the fighting men because we have to leave some back to deal with the consequence of a decision that took us from God's ideal. Are you with me? It's hard to hear. Kind of difficult, but it's true. And so several thousand men just kind of had to take care of things when, when God wanted all the warriors over there. Here's another consequence. Incomplete possession. As you read through the book of Joshua, though they, they conquered most of the land, you'll find that it wasn't until the reigns of David and Solomon that the children of Israel actually conquered the whole land. Took possession of the parameters laid out in Joshua 1. Two and a half tribes were here. Nine and a half here. I think there was always this visible reminder. We're not all here. It's a consequence. I think another consequence is what I call future fear. In fact, if you read Joshua 22, it's an interesting story. These two and a half tribes, and you'll learn this in your lighthouse, they set up a, a monument so that future generations, if they ever thought, they said, hey, who are those people on the other side of Jordan? They could look at this monument and realize, oh, they're part of us. The truth is, there never should have been a need for that kind of monument. Are you with me? They should have crossed on over. So, three consequences visibly just from this one decision. And I find that in Joshua 1, though they are very eager to work and sacrifice and do their part, I do think it's interesting that years earlier, if they just would have crossed over, we wouldn't be in this mess. Now listen very carefully. This principle is echoed throughout Scripture. Do you remember Abraham and Hagar? Who was their son? Ishmael's the father of whom? The Arabs. Ask any Jew about the conflict that's raised for centuries. And it would take you back to a decision that has had massive consequences. Are you with me? No matter the present commitment of the Jewish nation, they have to deal with the consequences of Abraham's unfortunate decision even way back then. You can talk about a number of biblical characters. What I think is really cool, though, is that, is that when we think about consequences and God's ideal and our ordeals, here's the best observation of all. When I look at all that and I get discouraged and I start thinking, man, can anyone really do anything and can we make a difference knowing all this? Here's the fourth observation. Write this down. Only God can truly take failures and make them so they're not fatal. Isn't that good to know? You see, it's kind of discouraging if you only hear the first three observations, isn't it? I, I, I hear those like, man, Todd, it's anniversary Sunday. How about a little good news? You're telling me that we should shoot for the ideal. I've, I'm kind of already blown that. You're telling me that, that if I get too comfortable, man, I want to compromise. And I'm fine and I'm kind of comfortable now. And then you're telling me that no matter what I do, the consequence is going to dog me forever. Todd, man, I'm looking forward to Sloppy Joe's, but I'm feeling too depressed to eat anything. Listen, I'm just kind of setting you up. Because in the midst of all of our sinful ordeals, you know what? We serve the kind of God who can take our ordeals, our sinful, selfish mistakes, 